Welcome to the ITE Talks Transportation Podcast from the Institute of Transportation Engineers. Each month, we'll bring you conversations with thought leaders in transportation on the future of the industry. Thanks for joining us. My name is Bernie Weigenblast, and on this month's episode, I'm joined from London in my hosting duties by Justin Ward, the Head of Policy and Technical Practice for the UK's CIHT, the Chartered Institution of Highways and Transportation. We're going to be discussing the evolution of urban form and function with our guest, Noreen MacDonald, the Chair of the Department of City and Regional Planning at UNC Chapel Hill. Justin, Noreen, welcome to the podcast. Nice to be here. Pleased to be joining us. Noreen, why don't we start off with you telling us a bit about the work that you're currently doing that touches on this space and some of the trends that you've been seeing, if you would, please. So recently, I've been really focused on how the pandemic has accelerated the changes in our uh, shopping behavior. So all of us are ordering more and more online. Um, Of course, we were doing that before the pandemic, but delivery of food, of goods, whatever it might be, is really changing the volume of freight delivery that we're seeing even on neighborhood streets and certainly on uh, major roads in cities and interstates as well. So what I've been thinking about is how well our planning processes are adapted for this new goods movement that's gonna be happening more and more locally. Um, And the the short answer is it's not terribly well adapted to it. So we've been trying to think about and understand how things like our development approval processes uh, link to providing accommodation for freight and how we can manage curb space better. Well, as you talk about some of these trends, which ones do you think at this point is it, or is it even possible to say, which ones will be temporary, which ones will be permanent, and how do these changes directly or indirectly affect transportation demand? That's a great question, and one I've been thinking about a lot. I think the trends on the e-commerce side are certainly here to stay, and we're going to need to figure out last-mile goods delivery so that it's done in a safe way and in a way where the workforce is well-paid. In terms of the travel patterns of how all of us go back and forth to work, to shop, whatever we might want to do, those trends I think are more complicated because I do think we'll see telecommuting here to stay in higher numbers, at least for white collar workers. And so that's gonna cause major shifts particularly in large urban areas that have very, very strong transit systems. So I just pulled up the numbers yesterday and in New York City, they have the numbers actually for just this week and they're down about 40% on buses, 50% on the subway, and even upwards of 60% on some of their commuter rail lines. And I think that's fairly consistent for major urban areas. So questions about what's going to happen to transit moving forward in major urban areas is I think one question where it's not totally certain, but I could see at least a continued diminishment in ridership looking out about five years. I think the other trends that we see are in where people will live. You know, we've all seen crazy headlines, right? The city's over, everybody's, you know, moving to the middle of nowhere, right? And of course, that's not actually true. We always like to say cities are dying and cities are incredibly resilient, but it's actually regions that are resilient. We all live in regions. 
And it turns out when you look at uh, which regions are growing, at least in the US, places that were popular before the pandemic continue to be popular. So Sunbelt cities, Northeastern and Midwestern cities, less popular, um, but the patterns are the same. So there, the pandemic didn't really change the trends. I think what it did change is where people are choosing to live within the region. So living very centrally, if you no longer need to commute to a office located in a central business district, suddenly that may have become less popular. So I think it's less about changing patterns of where in the country people are living, but changing increased pressure for suburbanization and even exurbanization as people take advantage of a much reduced need to commute to work. That's very much reflected in the UK as well. We've seen similar headlines at points in the pandemic where everyone's fleeing the cities and places on the coast. So the property markets are heating up so much that people have been outbid even before the property's gone on the market just about. But I do think, yeah, my experience living in London, certainly people are still here. We've not seen an exodus from the city. And, and there's, a, there's a long history of cities and you can see them continuing far into the future. And particularly from a transport perspective, I guess you can have more sustainable transport environments there for walking and cycling that, that are quite important. I think when we look forward to reducing kind of carbon associated with transport. So that's a kind of component of things, certainly in the UK. In the UK, we, I mean, at some point, the question is, what is the greater London area? Does it expand to include all of England or all of southeastern <laughs> England? Yeah, no, it's, it's, that's a, it's an interesting, good, good observation. I mean, I think it's uh, sometimes anti-London perception in, in the UK, but I think it, it's one of those cities, certainly from a transport perspective, is bringing forward some major innovations like the ultra low emission zone and it's uh, healthy streets concepts and so on. So some of the urban form and function here, I think are really, there's some examples that, that would be worth looking at from the rest of the world as well. But yeah, where it keeps going in terms of geographic boundaries, uh, I'm not sure quite, quite, uh, I can't see that far in the future, unfortunately. Noreen, you were talking about people saying, oh, the death of the cities and how that obviously is, is overblown and how resilient cities are. But one of the things that potentially people telecommuting more and more is going to affect is downtown office space and the ripple effect on the long-term vitality of urban business districts, not only because of the office space, but those workers going out to shop and to eat and things of that sort. Is there an opportunity to rethink how we might use this space and, and how urban business districts may evolve? That's a great point. I think we're already seeing that tension that if you look at uh, the place in the U.S. that has the most expensive real estate, Manhattan, the parts of the city that have been most resilient are the ones that had housing mixed in. So lower Manhattan, particularly after 9-11, mixed in a substantial amount of housing. And it's been somewhat more resilient than Midtown, which truly was an office destination. And there's been so much business closure there because there isn't the foot traffic to sustain those businesses. I think there's a municipal story linked to the office space, which is a lot of cities, their finances depend on the property taxes, particularly off of commercial buildings. And so I've seen some numbers that the value market value of commercial real estate in Manhattan was down about 25%. And that was potentially a $1 billion decrease in property tax revenue for the city. I think these numbers probably are moving around in, in real time. But I think that's the fiscal impacts 
in the near term, right? I am not betting against Manhattan real estate over the next 30 years, but I'm not sure I'm gonna bet on it in the next five years. We've already seen some examples of Google purchasing big buildings in Manhattan and other companies re-upping, but we also see some fairly large companies like JP Morgan Chase saying, you know, we, we no longer for every hundred employees, we're only gonna need 60 seats. Um, and so they're substantially pulling back and thinking about subletting some of their space. So I think that's certainly a trend that I would say companies are going to need per head less office space than they did previously. But the complexities of how that are going to play out is very difficult. But I think as cities think about their future, particularly the public sector side, how do you make yourself more resilient to those downturns? It's having the mix of uses, having the residential uses mixed in with some of the commercial. One question, Noreen, is the, the kind of forward look of cities as well. I mean, in terms of the evolution of urban form and function in the UK, we've been testing autonomous vehicles in a variety of urban areas. Given you've undertaken research on automated vehicles and pedestrian safety, exploring the promise and limits of pedestrian detection, what do you see as the limits in this area? I guess I'll say I've been surprised at how quickly conversations about autonomous vehicles have quieted down. I think it was only five years ago that people were saying, in five years, we're going to have ABs everywhere. And now you don't really hear that. There, there clearly are a lot of pilots still in place. Um, but I think the the detection, um, particularly of pedestrians, but really of a variety of objects, have it's an incredibly difficult problem. And so where I think we'll see the deployment of those vehicles is where we're currently seeing it on these sort of small scale shuttle, very slow moving kind of transit feeder type of routes. And um, while I think that, you know, there's going to be so much research and development put into it, it may not necessarily in the next 10 years or so be a conversation about whether all of us are beginning calling up an automated Uber, um, but rather how transit agencies or maybe some large commercial buildings can sort of factor in these autonomous vehicles to make themselves more accessible and potentially lower the costs of providing that access. Noreen, you talked about some of the trends, some of the big question marks that are still out there as far as what lies ahead. I'm curious how this all fits into the planning process. You you look at planning and obviously in the past, a lot of it was based on five-year trends, 10-year trends, things of that sort. Those trends have kind of been thrown out the window now, and we're trying to figure out exactly where things are going. How much confidence should we have both in past plans that maybe we're still looking at if someone was doing a a long-term plan of 10 or 15 years and What about even short-term plans? How much confidence should we put in those? I think long-term transportation planning has been a questionable enterprise at best for a long time, and the pandemic only reinforces that. You know, if we think about long-range transportation planning, we're asking agencies to predict travel by time of day on specific road segments and specific transit routes 30 years in the future, I mean, that's a, that's an incredible task to ask somebody. It requires that you predict where people are going to live neighborhood by neighborhood. It requires that you predict where they're going to work neighborhood by neighborhood and do all of that out 30 years from now. 
you know, a number of people have been saying for a long time that maybe we need to use these tools slightly differently and instead think about, you know, we might imagine what happens, what happens in the future if gas prices go very high or what happens in the future if we dramatically improve cycling infrastructure or pedestrian infrastructure. And let's use these models that we've spent millions of dollars building and are incredibly sophisticated tools more as what if scenarios planners than as telling the future. And all the modelers that I've talked to, they understand the limits of those tools. It's actually our planning processes that require these demand forecasts and don't acknowledge the uncertainty in them that are somewhat problematic. And so I think, yes, you know, we've all seen this major shock where a lot of agencies are saying, well, what past data do I use? Do I throw out all the data from the pandemic and sort of forget that that happened? Or do I include it? Because I think maybe there's going to be more telecommuting. There, you know, there's sort of basic questions about what goes into the trend forecasts now. But I think it's also opened eyes to the problems with forecasting and maybe how focusing more incrementally on near-term forecasts and then in the future sort of thinking about what are the some major factors that will affect the future even if they're outside the control of the public agency along with how do we envision a future that we might like um, and what kind of policies would need to be put in place for that. Um, And a lot of regions and uh, communities are trying to do that, but the regulations, at least in the United States, around planning, you know, long range and making highway and transit infrastructure investments do still require these, you know, 30 to 40 year forecasts. I have a question both for Justin and for Noreen. I live in northern New Jersey. A lot of folks here traditionally have commuted into New York City for their work. As more and more people are going into work, one of the things that I've heard, at least anecdotally, is that people are going back to work in some cases, maybe even if it's not five days a week, but they still don't feel comfortable taking transit. And that means they're going back to their cars and traffic jams are increasing back to pre-pandemic levels. Do you think that that's going to be a long-term trend or will confidence come back with transit? And and Justin, in in your case, are you seeing the same thing in the UK? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's that's a real challenge. I think the transport sector is is that bounce back in terms of returning to gain that confidence from people to get back onto public transport. I think we're seeing that, but I I think the ridership is is significantly down. I mean, last year, the, the full in the drop-off in trips over the pandemic where it was significant. I mean, that in certain transport modes, we'd seen an uptake in cycling. That was one sort of outlier journey that people were making more of and more for, for leisure purposes and just to get that kind of outdoor space. And But I think there is a challenge. I think there'll be a challenge in terms of what Noreen said earlier about the revenue, because even if people do feel comfortable to return to public transport use, if that's only three days, that means then you're seeing a, two-fifths cut in fare toll going through the booth. So I think there's a financial issue, maybe the public confidence issues is there. I think we were seeing it certainly last year that people get into their car for trips and that was the way they felt safest doing that. I think there's confidence returning now. I mean, I've seen people out in 
as I said, I live in London. People are actually on the metros, people are on the tube. I didn't see numbers. It, it looked like the return. And, and we are still in the pandemic, so it felt slightly peculiar depending on how you view these things. But I didn't see a huge amount of nervousness from people on, on that. But yeah, where it goes, it's an intriguing question. I mean, CHT did do work a few years ago on CHT Futures, which was about embracing uncertainty and the need to actually deal with uncertainty. I think that the concept of scenario planning was pretty strong in that, looking at how energy prices might affect things. And obviously in the UK at the moment, we're seeing significant increase in gas price and, and HGV shortages. So we're actually, so, so these things are real and right now happening. And I think it does influence uh, travel patterns and, and transport demand. And, and I think it's those uncertainties, those unpredictabilities that we really need to embrace actually, rather than reject and just say, no, no, everything, this is how it happened in the past and this is what we have to do going forward. And you need some flexibility in, in design of sort of systems and approaches for that. I agree with what Justin said. It's, it's hard to figure out what this looks like going forward because some of it is this question of we don't, you know, if I'm only going to the office two days a week, maybe I don't mind sitting in more traffic. Whereas if I was going in five days a week, I wouldn't be willing to drive that every day and pay the heavy parking cost. Um, but the data do clearly show that the congestion on the roads is back. Um, although there's been a ton of growth in social and recreational trips. So it's back at a very wide range of times, you know, not just the traditional peak periods. In fact, some of the highest levels of congestion are more weekend times or, or times that we might have thought of before as not being congested. And then there's also some people that will embrace a less, you know, getting a seat on, on um, New Jersey transit is a nice thing. <laughs> so some people <laughs> will benefit from that, but for the revenue side from the transit agencies, it has to look pretty scary right now. I mean, most of them have a lot of COVID money cushioning things for the next couple of years. So they may not need to actually answer this question in the near term, and they may be able to see what happens. So one thing in the UK we've seen is, is a real debate about how we use our streets and how we use space within that. And it has caused contentious sort of feelings at some points in terms of reallocation of road space and creating low, low traffic neighbourhoods, but by a small minority, I would say. But the concept of streets and the kind of metrics they were used to design them and create them is a really fascinating topic. And I'd like to ask sort of from a US perspective, reflecting on how we think about them in the UK, if, if that sounds like that kind of thinking is happening in the US as well. So CHT released a report creating better streets in 2018 and set out five objectives that should underpin good street design. And that was an inclusive environment, ease of movement, safety and public health, quality of place and economic benefits. And I think more recently, I think we're, we're seeing things like the concept of sustainability being a sixth dimension in terms of green and blue infrastructure, so tree pits and sustainable drainage. So, so those components are very much in the minds of designers who are looking to create streets of the future. Is that something that's similar in the US? Have you seen those wider criteria than just thinking about maybe a vehicle moving or someone walking that they actually should embody and, and take on a whole range of different challenges and criteria? In the US, cities and communities are really embracing the idea that of complete streets is a term that we often use here, the idea that roads need to be designed for all users, not simply for vehicles, and that means the provision of space for them. 
And so that idea, I think it's certainly permeating the curriculum um, that students are being exposed to. And I think through professional education, it's also influencing the profession. And I think it will continue to do so. The pandemic also provided a learning lab as many streets shut down um, and there was space given over to walking and cycling or space given over to eating. And some of, or many of those experiments are continuing. There's been some places where they've decided to pull back or communities decided they didn't want them. But I think in many places being able to visualize it and, and live it was a much better way of getting patterns to change it wasn't intended as a pilot, but that's what it became. I think the big difference, though, in the U.S. in thinking about street planning is that the topic of race and equity and what that means in our streets and uh, when we talk about concepts like safety or quality of place, we're starting to have more conversations about safety for whom, conversations about how policing intersects with that, that there's traffic stops are not equal across races, that black and brown individuals are stopped more frequently on our roads. So um, many of the strategies that have particularly been proposed around safety often involve enforcement. And now there's a real conversation about whose safety is being promulgated through enforcement and who is maybe becoming actually less safe through that. So I think in the US, that extra dimension around race and what it looks like in the transportation system is something that's being talked about. It hasn't flowed through to practice maybe in a formal way right now, but I think you know there's similar conversations, but there's some differences in the conversations in the two countries. Well, it's been fascinating hearing both a UK and a US perspective on how all of this is changing as far as transportation and land use and public transportation, et cetera. But I think we could probably go on for quite a long time to uh, dig into this even further. But uh, at this point, I do want to thank our guest, Noreen McDonald, Chair of City and Regional Planning at UNC Chapel Hill, as well as my co-host, Justin Ward, who is the Head of Policy and Technical Practice for the Chartered Institution of Highways and Transportation in London. It's been wonderful chatting with you both, and thank you both for being part of the podcast. Great. Enjoyed it. Thank you.